I thought, oh my gosh, what if I have a year of no nonsense? I'm just going to get rid of all this nonsense and everything will be great. And, and so it became this kind of funny experiment. But what I learned in the process is that we all have our own personal brands of nonsense and we have the, the habits, the things we're doing that, you know, tick us off that are standing in the way of our, our health and our happiness and our, our success. And if we can identify those things in our lives and, and nonsense is subjective, mine is not yours, yours is not mine. If we can identify those things that are nonsense to us, we can make a decision. And so one of the challenges that I leave people with like on podcast is you can take it, take two weeks and every choice you have to make that comes to you, ask yourself, is this nonsense? Yes or no. And it's a really fun way to look at your life, <laughs> to categorize every person, place or thing in your life as nonsense to you. Welcome to the Driver Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, turned performance coach to founder CEOs, and avid Brazilian jiu-jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Meredith Atwood. Meredith is a former attorney turned author, podcaster, speaker, four-time Ironman triathlete, and coach. In her own words, in 2010, she was out of shape, addicted to alcohol, seriously overweight, and lost in her own mind, body, and world. She then found the sport of triathlon, and at the time had no idea how much of a life changer that would be for her. Little by little, she overcame some big things, including quitting alcohol and the legal profession. Today, she shares her story and knowledge through writing, podcast, speaking, and coaching to help transform the lives of others. In this interview, we get into her, we get into her origin story and life as an attorney, the spark that provided the momentum for her to turn her life around, competing in triathlons, her podcast and published books, and all things personal growth and self-discovery. And so, without further ado, my interview with Meredith Atwood. How are you doing with all that's going on in the in the world right now? Um, we're doing okay. I think it's about managing expectations and and trying to really figure out what is in our control versus what is not, and trying to do a good job figuring that out. You know, um, there's just so much we can't control, but we really never could control. A lot of things and and i think there was a mm -hmm. perception that we were controlling you know controlling so much of our life and i think this is this time is a great reminder that there's a lot we don't control yeah yeah i think i would agree that's a good perspective to have um so what's occupying most of your time these days um well i'm i'm still working i'm still coaching and working out and writing doing all the same obligations so i always worked from home so i'm i'm actually gotcha. doing the same things that I was before, except also, you know, homeschooling kids and contending with a husband who's very busy <laughs> as well and trying to make everyone happy. But it's it's all right. It's not that big of a change for me personally. It's it's a big change for the other people in my house. Right. And and have you seen uh, maybe like an uptick in coaching um, since the, I guess, pandemic situation has increased in severity? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I've seen an uptick. I've seen a lot more people reaching out with questions and, and concerns. I think coaching is not considered a necessity for a lot of people right now. Mm -hmm. And so people aren't out there just, you know, I, I tend to think coaching is, is a necessity. I've learned over the years, I do so much better when I have an accountability partner and someone holding me to the fire. So, but to, to a lot of people that is an extra added expense and it's something that's just not that important to them in the grand scheme. And so I haven't seen a downturn, but I haven't really seen an uptick either, I guess I would say. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Bringing this to kind of the beginning, wh where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Massachusetts in New England? No, no. I've, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia and spent my life outside of Atlanta. So me being up in New England is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, absolutely sure. crazy. Um, we we came here last May, 
and for, for my husband's job. And, um, yeah, that's, it was, it's definitely, I've heard that this winter was mild. I did not feel that it was mild, but my Southern <laughs> opinion apparently doesn't, doesn't know what it's talking about. So yeah, we're, I'm originally from the South and, um, yeah, Amazon is delivering if you hear that sound. So <laughs> okay. that, that sound is in the background. Sorry. I have everything else muted. Um, no, no worries. but yeah, yeah. We're just new Englanders now. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so did you grow up in an environment where an active and healthy lifestyle, it was popular where you were in Savannah, Georgia or kind of that community? Yeah. So my dad was a athlete in high school, but my mom was not. And as, a, as adults, they were not active. So, um, I was involved in a bunch of sports, but I didn't start until really sixth grade with basketball and um, it was eighth grade that I became a part of Team Savannah. I was Olympic style weightlifting. So I was a, a weightlifter for about eight years, I guess. And then I, after I went to college and law school, I just didn't do anything. <laughs> so growing <laughs> up, um, I was active, but in ways that were sort of inactive, if that makes sense, because weightlifting is not an endurance sport. It's completely um, non-aerobic. And mm -hmm. so I was active. I was strength training daily for many, many hours, but I wasn't working out in any sort of cardiovascular way. Right. And how did you get into weightlifting in the first place? Yeah. So I was on a basketball team in eighth grade and the coach for the basketball team um, told my dad, he's like, when I try and drag Meredith around the basketball court, she just doesn't really move like the other girls does. She's like really solid. She try out weightlifting. <laughs> so my dad was like, okay. And so I ended up going to this gym where, um, the weightlifting coach, Michael Cohen was, was teaching people to Olympic lift. And this was way before CrossFit. This was way before people did like clean and jerks at the gym. Like no one was doing this kind of stuff and, and certainly not girls. And that was Michael Cohen's kind of claim to fame as he was getting women involved in weightlifting. And so that's, that's how I got started. I was 14 and walked into the gym and he showed me how to do a, a power clean and a power clean 50 kilos, which is 110 pounds on my first day. And he mm. was like, yeah, she's kind of strong. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. let's, let's make her into a weightlifter. And so I did, I did that. I did that for many years. And a lot of people like to ask, well, what's your biggest lift? So, um, I, my best lift was a 230 pound clean and jerk. Wow. Um, which wasn't really that impressive compared to the other lifts that I did. I always had they, they so in Olympic weightlifting, you have two lifts, you have the snatch and the clean and jerk. And usually you have like a 20 kilo or 44 pound spread between the two and difference. And I always, they always joked with me that, um, they called it the Nesbitt because Nesbitt was my maiden name. And I always had like a 20 pound spread. <laughs> I just, <laughs> just never had the quite the, the right separation. And, um, so I should have actually clean and jerked probably about 250, but never quite got there. So right. it's all good. <laughs> yeah. All good. Uh, so why did you end up, why did you stop doing it? I think, um, I think I gave up, you know, in hindsight, mm -hmm. I, I just quit. And I regret that. I, I don't think I saw it through. I don't think I had a good attitude. I don't think I was mentally strong. I didn't, I didn't push hard enough. I just, I just kind of gave up. And, and I think it was the time I was, I was going off to college and um, it, it just would have been really difficult to continue. I would have had to, I could have stayed at home and gone to the, the school in town and really pursued weightlifting or I could go and pursue school and, I just, I don't know. I was kind of burnt out and I didn't really, just didn't really want to do it anymore. And I wish I would have stuck around for a couple more years. I really do. But what can you do? You know, that was, that's the story. And there's no point living in the past. Too many people are stuck in the past. I'm not going to be stuck in the past on weightlifting. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was just the time. It was time for me to move on. So I did. Yeah, right. And let's talk about kind of your path to becoming an attorney and through school, was this the classic story of parents pressuring you to, you know, choose a specific career or did you, you know, ha actually have a real interest in becoming an attorney? Well, so when I was in high school, I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to go to journalism and be like a reporter, move to New York, <laughs> write stories, 
go to poetry slams, <laughs> um, just just be, you know, be a writer. And when I got to college, somebody said to me, you know, you're going to be dirt poor being a writer, you're going to be broke. And something in that really affected me. I was terrified. I was terrified. I watched my dad, my whole childhood, he was self employed. And I watched how hard he hustled and the fear of money and economic downturn was always a very real fear for me. So when someone said that to me, I thought, Oh, gosh, I better, I better not do this whole <laughs> dream. And I better make a better choice. And what I did was looked up the best degrees for or I probably looked up best careers to make a lot of money. And mm -hmm. I realized medicine was out for me because I wasn't too handy at math. And so I looked up lawyers and what what was you know, what did the law schools want? And they liked English degrees, history degrees. And so I thought, well, I can get an English degree. That's basically the same thing as a journalism degree, minus a few, you know, newspaper writing and communication classes. And so I did that. I got an English degree. I took Latin as my required language and I applied to law school and, and went off into the world. And, and I do think to answer your question, I did do what was expected of me. And I ever understood that maybe those expectations were self-imposed. Mm -hmm. I never bothered to ask. I do think there was a certain level of expectation that was put on me as a kid and as a teenager and as a young adult and a college student. I definitely think that there was pressure. But at the same time, I, I don't know where my parents' expectations ended and mine began. I'm still not really sure. But all I know is, I didn't like it. I did not like being a lawyer. I didn't. I knew okay. on the first day of law school that I had made a grave error. And I spent 13 years trying to figure out what I would, how I would get out of it. And, and so that's, that's a tough place to be. Um, a lot of people will just quit doing the thing. They will just walk out and figure something out or not complete law school. But I, I've always had this sort of sense that I needed to continue and don't give up. You don't quit. You keep going. And so I did until I just couldn't do it anymore. So, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> wow. So do you think looking back, you do you wish you would have left that field earlier? I wish I would have walked out on my first day at class. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I knew I knew on the first day of law school that I was in the wrong place. I knew it with everything. I, I remember that feeling. I remember what I was wearing. I remember thinking, I have made a mistake. This is not what I'm supposed to do. But at the same time, I think it's kind of silly to look back and say, I should have done this. I should have done that. Because first of all, a law degree is not a bad degree to have. Mm -hmm. um, it, it has led me through to be exactly where I'm at. I've met some great people. Um, it's, it's a helpful degree to have, you, you know, I can read contracts. I can, I kind of know all sorts of angles when I know what to do when we get sued, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> practical. So, yeah. um, not that we get sued that often, <laughs> but in the event that there is a lawsuit, I know, okay, we got 30 days to respond to this. Um, so to say, I wish I would have done something differently, I think is just a waste of time. But mm -hmm. I do wonder sometimes what would have happened had I stuck to the original dream. Um, not like, did you not go to law school? And what if you gone to another law school? But if I had really stuck to what I love to do, which was writing and photography, and, and if I had gone to New York and become a journalist, like what would have happened? I, I that kind of haunts me in a way. But you know, I've got two kids and that this life and that wouldn't exist. So I don't know, looking back feels sort of wasteful sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of dangerous to get caught up in that. Yeah. Probably too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could have moved to New York and gotten hooked on crack. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it yeah, could have been a total that. disaster. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. And so how many years <clears throat> were you working as an, as an attorney and not living and active in healthy lifestyle or just an, unhe an unhealthy lifestyle um probably i'm trying to think i guess my kids were two and they were like one and two so that i have to backtrack i guess it was like seven or eight years probably mm -hmm. that i just kind of started drinking very heavily and just eating whatever and not not exercising and just not taking care of myself in any way i mean when i look back on that I still have so much work I want to do on myself, 
right now. But when I look back on that time, I was doing nothing good for myself. I mean, nothing. I wasn't reading books I liked. I wasn't meditating. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't dreaming. I was just dead, you know, just dead inside. And I don't even think I knew it. It's just that autopilot. And it's easy to get that way when you have very young children. I mean, young children are our autopilot. You kind of just do it out of survival. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it's real fair to look back and be like, oh, I was dead inside. I wasn't dead inside, but I was also dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just a time when I was doing nothing to move my soul forward. And um, yeah, it just, it was, it was tough. And I, I think the more I get to speak with women and especially women, but men too, it, it's easy to, to just, get into the rat race do what you're always supposed to do quote supposed to do yeah um and then put your head down and do it and to feel like the world is your world around you is controlling you and you have no say in it It, it's very common Mm -hmm. right and so what i guess what were your maybe excuses or maybe like limiting beliefs for not putting in the time to uh maybe just better yourself overall during those seven years yeah, I think, I mean, one is the the age-old excuse that we just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have the time. How do I have the time? Well, you make the time. I mean, you learn that. You learn that when you really want something. You learn that when you actually want change. You learn that when the, the pain of staying the same is <laughs> just too great, you know, and you find the time. So it was that. It was also, I drank a lot. And, you know, I walked in the door and had the kids and got the kids to bed and then I would pour a glass of wine to relax because that's that. And then that becomes a habit. You just, you do the same things out of habit and you're on autopilot. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was habit and, and excuses and also just fatigue. I think, I think fatigue of life was, was definitely present. And I think the understanding that I had chosen the wrong career, but was too far in it, you know, believing that I was too far in it to do anything about it. And I spent so much money on this on law school and my family's so proud of me and you just, you made your bed. So go lay in it. And all of those were, were kind of themes. They were kind of just themes in my life at the time. Right. You must know who Rich Roll is. I would imagine. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between. Uh, I know. I've been trying to talk to Rich for a while. I'm, I'm <laughs> like, dude, we would be good friends. I promise. I'm not crazy. <laughs> we have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah. Try to get him on the podcast, right? Yeah. 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 Walk me through, uh, I think you call it your spark that you had and um, yeah. kind of how that ultimately led you to turning your, like, basically your whole life around. Yeah. So I went to work one day and at the law firm, we had these lunch and learns. They would bring in a third party to teach you about yoga or to sell you something and they would feed you. <laughs> and I loved, I loved lunch and learns. They were the greatest thing about my job. <laughs> um, so anyway, I went in one day and I grabbed like my excessive amounts of food and sat down in the lunch and learn. And I realized I had been bamboozled into a lunch and learn that had a gym membership drive (laughs) and I thought oh god and at the time I was probably 250 pounds and like the last thing on my mind was a gym the last thing on my mind was working out my kids were one and two and just I wasn't thinking about I was just trying to get through the day and so like a people pleaser I purchased the gym membership that day and thought well maybe I'll do something with this and so I went home and told my husband hey I joined a gym and he was like, oh, no, <laughs> here we go again, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I, I just want I tried things. I tried you know, detoxes and diets and this and that, and just trying to f- get some something under me, just some momentum. And I just I never could. And so he wasn't being mean. It was just part of he'd seen it. You know, he'd seen it before. So the next morning I got up at five, five a.m. and drove to the office and I learned something very interesting right away is that there's no traffic in Atlanta at 5 a.m. and there's no kids and it's quiet and it's kind of nice and I can drink my coffee in peace and so I went to the gym and walked into a spinning class one of the indoor cycling classes and um, I sat on the little tiny bike seat and looked around and thought oh my gosh I do not belong here I don't fit in here I don't look like these people. I can't even breathe. And we've not even started class. 
this is not good. But as class started, um, Jerry Halpin, who later became my coach, he was leading the class. He said, did you know that every day is the first day of the rest of your life? And I thought, no, I didn't know that. Like, <laughs> you know, like anyone does, they start, I started crying, crying in spinning class. Totally mm -hmm. normal, totally cool. And it just was this moment where I thought, oh my gosh, every day is the first day of the rest of my life. I can, I don't have to do this anymore this way. I don't, I can change. And I, it just was this spark. And, and I call it my spark moment because I felt it. I felt it inside of me. Something woke up and this was 10 years ago. This, this did not light a fire, <laughs> but it was a spark. It was just a, a little bit of warmth that I needed. And, and from there, I started going to spinning class. I went on Fridays and I went on like Mondays. And then I got in the pool a little bit. And, and Jerry, the, the spinning instructor, told me about a year later, he said, you know, you could do a triathlon if you wanted to. And I was like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do that. That sounds crazy. But I started looking into it and I thought, no, maybe I could. And six weeks later, after he said that to me from from the time he said it to the time I crossed the finish line was six weeks. And I just did a short sprint and I crashed my bike in transition and I don't wear my swim cap in the pool swim. And I finished last on the run and it was wonderful. It was just mm -hmm. such a massive change in such a short period of time. In six weeks, I went from um, I can't do this to, oh my gosh, I just did. What else can I do? And it grew from there. And, and once you do something completely out of your comfort zone and you do it successfully. Now I didn't, I mean, I guess the word successful is probably a little bit uh, too big of a word for what my first triathlon was, but I finished. Mm -hmm. And once you do something like that, it, it changes your, your brain and you start to think, Oh my goodness, I can do, I can do so much more what would happen if I tried to do this? And, and so that started my triathlon journey. I was on fire after that. I mean, then the spark really lit and I thought I, I can, I can do some stuff. I, I can do, what if I do a, an Olympic distance and what if I do a half Ironman and, and it just grew from there. Right. And so how did you keep yourself accountable during those six weeks, uh, leading up to your first triathlon to make sure you didn't, uh, you know, I guess, skip a bunch of training days or, um, ultimately not decide not to compete. Um, I don't, I don't really remember, honestly. I think I, first of all, I didn't know really what to do. I didn't have a plan. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I knew I'd been going to spinning class for a year, so I knew I could ride the 15 mile bike. I think it was, but I had to get my bike in order and I had to go outside to ride. And that was crazy. I didn't know how to use gears on my bike and I didn't know how to to actually ride. And so I had to teach myself how to ride outside in those six weeks. And I had to teach myself essentially how to swim. I swam in first grade on swim team. So I, I thought, Oh my goodness, I can swim. I know how to do this. No, it didn't. I didn't re quite remember. <laughs> so, I mean, I got in the pool and I, I, I swam and I biked and I did a little bit of running and, and I thought, well, I think I can do this all together. So I hit each distance. So I think it was like a 500 meter pool swim. So I made sure I could do my 500 meters and I knew I could do my bike and I knew that I could do my run and I knew I would have to walk some of the run. It was fine. And so I never, it never occurred to me how hard that might be to put it all together. And honestly, it really wasn't any harder than doing <laughs> any of the individual things at full speed. So, um, I, I just was determined to do it. And I thought, I'm just going to go do this thing and it's going to be fine. And it was. And I, I think people put too much pressure on themselves for their first triathlon. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be this big thing. I mean, you need to know how to swim. And if you have an open water swim, especially, that's kind of a different ball of wax, which I talk about in my triathlon book. But a pool swim where you can stand up and you know, get out if you need to, I, you can get by and you can get by on any bike and you can run, walk, or you can walk the whole thing. And you're at the end, you cross the finish line and you did a triathlon. Um, so I, I try and encourage people, if that's something you want to do, then just go do it, you know, put it together and go do it. And, and then you'll have done it. And the big scary thing is gone. 
and and you're a hero to yourself. Yeah, right. And what was the experience like for you for your first full Ironman? Um, and and what was the, uh, I guess, the time period between that first triathlon and then ultimately completing your first kind of full iron distance triathlon? Yeah, so I did my first sprint in October of 2010, and I did my first Ironman in July of 2013. I'm not very mathy. I think it's like two and a half years between starting and doing my first Ironman. And um, the first Ironman was was interesting. I mean, I did have a coach. I can't imagine how I would have ever gotten through it without without Jerry. I, I don't think that everyone has to have a coach, but I had no endurance background. You have to realize, like, I was a weightlifter. I did mm-hmm. none of those sports, <laughs> none of them. I had no idea how to put a training plan together. Um, I couldn't even honestly read a PDF that told me to swim. Like I didn't even understand the lingo. So, um, Jerry was really integral in my getting to the start line of Coeur d'Alene and then ultimately finishing. But, um, yeah, I, re- I wrote a bunch of centuries and I swam many, many swims over 3,500 meters. Like that was minimum swims toward the end. And I did a couple over 4,000 meters and, um, I did not run, I want to say I had not run further than 15 miles. And I don't know that I ever in all four of my Ironmans made it further than 15 miles um, to train. I just, I, I knew that by the time I got to mile 13 on the marathon course of an Ironman, that I was going to be dying anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> it just, it never occurred to me like, oh, I need to go out and run 24 miles for my long run because. I was going to die. I think it just didn't matter. I wasn't a runner, not in the tra- you know traditional sense. I was a runner, but you know, I just, it was different. It's different training like a normal average person versus someone really gunning for Kona or something. So, um, you know, Jerry trained me accordingly. He, tra- he trained me to finish and he trained me to get there um, uninjured. And that was, that was the most important thing. But my first one was incredible. And the biggest takeaway that I had from, from that finish line was on race day, I had my whole family there, my parents, my husband, my two kids, they were four and five. And my husband had told my son, Hey, when, when we get to the finish line, mommy's going to high five you. You just got to hang in there. And, you know, it was a long day. I finished in 16 hours and 44 minutes with like, you know, 16 minutes to spare. And so at the end of the race, I'm going down the finish chute. Yay. I did it. You know, hooray. Mm -hmm. And I crossed the finish line and my son is just bitter. (laughs) He's just (laughs) really upset at me. And my parents look like they'd been through a war zone and my husband was exhausted and, you know, looking back, and I, I write about this in my triathlon book, at that moment, yes, Ironman, these races, it was about me. It was about, oh my gosh, I put in this work, I worked so hard, yay me, go me. But I was so in myself and so egocentric that I did not even consider the fact that maybe I should look for my family in the finisher route and that maybe my kids wanted to see me. I just didn't think. And so I learned such a big lesson from that race that at the 11th hour, when it really mattered to, to acknowledge my family that I failed, I just failed to do that. And so looking back, I'm like, really, yeah, I'm proud of my Ironmans. I'm proud of it, but I'm much prouder of the 70.3 I did in Augusta 13 weeks after, after Coeur d'Alene, when I carried treats, snacks, dinosaurs in my fuel belt. <laughs> And every time I saw my kids, I stopped and handed them a toy. And in the finish shoot of that race, I stopped. I hugged them. I have this awesome picture of me reaching for my kids. And that is the finish line. I actually treasure more than Coeur d'Alene. Um, and then Beach to Battleship, I did that before Iron Man bought North Carolina. I did that one the next year. And I was able to actually cross the finish line with the kids. Um, and it's just different. It's a different perspective. So I was, of course, I was proud of myself and it, it was really an impossible dream accomplished. And so yay me, but it, it's kind of tarnished by the way I didn't think about the people most important to me in that last, last hour. So I always like to share that story for anyone that's in the middle of training for it. Like, don't forget your people at any time in the process, but especially at the right. end, because the celebration is, is just as much theirs to share. 
Right. That's interesting. So was it like, so it wasn't like that you acknowledged your family, like during the run, you mean during that Ironman, it was just kind of like at the end when you actually cross the finish line that, um, I guess you acknowledge them. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah. I mean, I saw them during the race, you know, I saw them along the course, but like, I just didn't think in the finisher shoot to look for them. And to, to stop and high five my son and my husband had said all day, like, mommy's going to high five you. And she runs by at the finish. And I missed the memory. He, he, in hindsight, he should have told me, <laughs> hey, sad that you were going to high five us. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know that promise had been made. But it, it, looking back, of course, I should have known to do that. Like, that's just how I I wasn't gunning for Kona. You know, it's not like I yeah, was yeah. trying to sprint to the finish. I was an age grouper barely scraping by and. Um, I don't know. It just, it just stuck with me that, that I could have done better. And, you know, maybe that's just me beating myself up about it, but I do think it's my obligation to kind of remind, especially first time iron Ironman athletes or first time 70.3 athletes to, to just keep your perspective. It's really easy to lose it. Yeah. Right. And do you still compete in triathlons today? Nope. I haven't done one since 2018. Um, I did, I did Augusta in 2018 on nothing but CrossFit training for an entire (laughs) year and it was fine. I only finished like 40 minutes slower than my best time. (laughs) So since then I've like kind of said, Hey, you you just get strong. It'll be fine. Um, but yeah, I, I did it for eight years and, and it's just not on my radar right now. It doesn't mean I'll never go back, but, um, I still coach and, Obviously, I wrote a triathlon book and um, write for some magazines and stuff. So, I mean, I'm still very much a voice in triathlon, and I think it's a wonderful sport. It saved my life and um, brought me so much joy and so many great things. But, yeah, I'm just not actively competing right now. Mm -hmm. Just, like, different fitness interests, I guess, right now, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm lifting, I'm doing a lot of weightlifting for health and CrossFit-type stuff. And, you know, I'm running every so often, um, but I'm not swimming. Well, no one's swimming right now, but yeah, mm-hmm. just not, just not doing it right now. Yeah. And what do you think it is about endurance sports, whether it is an Ironman marathon running, ultra running, et cetera, that attracts people looking to, uh, transform themselves and their lives? I think it's hard. I think the, it's hard to discipline yourself to do the, the actual training. And so it's a challenge for people and, Obviously, the idea of doing three sports in one race is a big deal, especially if you're not very good at any of them, <laughs> which was the case with me. I, did, I wasn't good at any of them, so why not do all three of them? Um, and you have to realize I did a triathlon before I did a half marathon. I did a triathlon before I ever did a bike ride. You know, I mean, so I went mm-hmm. straight straight into it because it was such a challenge and, and felt so scary. And people with the personalities and, and especially who have stressful jobs, they tend to need an outlet, you know, and if you're not doing, and also addicts, <laughs> addicts tend to flock to triathlon because people mm-hmm. can no longer drink. And so let's go be addicted to something, you know, quote unquote healthy and, uh-huh. and do endurance sports. And, and it is healthier, but of course to everything and, and reasonable limits and, and so you can take any sport to extremes, but I, I think it's, I think one, one is the challenge. And then two, it's also the personality of, of the people in the sports. Like there's not a lot of super laid back people in endurance sports. I don't think, I mean, there's a few, I have a, a few friends, right. but I think if there was a poll, it would be like 30, 70, 70% yeah. being pretty intense personalities. Yeah. Maybe the more laid back people are like the trail runners, <laughs> <laughs> right? The trail runners. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when did the moment come for you where kind of you decided that you wanted to use your story as a way to serve others? Um, Right out of the get-go, like right right from the get-go, I started my blog. And the first sentence was, I've decided to become a triathlete. And that was really, I was just putting it out there because one, I wanted to have some sort of accountability. Like, am I actually going to do this? I better put it down somewhere. I better around. I know my mom's going to be the only one to read it, but at least she'll read it and and it'll be good. So once that got out there and this was early Facebook and, and early, like not everyone was blogging. So to, to write a blog and put it out there was, 
not a lot of people were doing it. So I gained a following pretty quickly. People just saying, what in the world is this fat girl doing? <laughs> because I was just this fat girl doing triathlon. And um, so pretty quickly I thought, okay, I'm writing and this is helping people because they're seeing themselves in me or they're seeing me do this crazy sport and think, oh my gosh, maybe I can go do this. And so as soon as I figured out that people cared, not just about what I was saying, but about what it meant, about what it meant to me and maybe what it, what it meant to them and how they saw themselves in my story or, or in their wife's story or their husband's story, then, then it became, it became real for me. And, and I, I tried to be more of service and, and do things that I thought would would be more beneficial to people. And, and I eventually got certified as a coach just so I could back up the things I was sharing on my blog and, and then started coaching beginner triathletes. And, and now I coach all levels um, of athletes. But yeah, I just, I, I feel like when you're in a position to share a story, it's like your obligation to do it. <laughs> I just think that if everyone would share their story, the world would be such a better place because it is in the hard times and in the pain and in the struggle that we find our similarities, we find our humanity and, and we, we find intimacy and, and, and relationships. And so I, I kind of just, I felt that I, I felt, and then plus people would email and say, Oh my gosh, thank you for writing this. I believe I can go do this now. And, and that feeds you too. I mean, it makes you feel good yeah. to, to know that you're helping people. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And so then you go on to start um, the Swim Bike Mom organization. Was it, so it was then, I guess, started originally, I guess, through writing through the blog and also, and also through the yeah. book, right? Yeah. I mean, I, and I, you know, you say it's an organization. It's not really, it's just, it's just my, <laughs> it's where I name things. I mean, it, it was a oh, blog okay. and then um, it's my coaching company and all that, but it's, it's not really an organization. It's not really a business. It's, it's kind of a landing place and um, you know, I've done some programs and I've certainly made some money doing it, but it's always been out of um, trying to provide a place or a service for other people to better themselves. Like if I find something that really helps me and, and I meet a person that's really influential in my life, like I'll be like, hey, do you want to do a program so we can share this with people? And then, you know, I'll make some money doing it, which is nice because I don't make money doing podcasting. I mean, I could, but I, I don't and I don't really make much money writing books. And so you know, it's nice to be able to subsidize your, your income, um, in a way that feels good and helpful to people. But, you know, to call it an organization, I don't know, that was the name of my blog and it just kind of stuck. And <laughs> now it's my social media <laughs> handles and I don't really want to change it. Cause I don't know. It's like, I've been with it too long now. Um, right. but yeah, it started with the blog in 2010. Okay. Got it. And how challenging was it for you to write your first book? Um, and what were your kind of goals in writing it? Yeah. So when I started out doing triathlon, I, I searched all over for resources that would tell like an overweight mom how to do a triathlon. <laughs> like, how you know, where do I run? What do I do? Because you had asked me, like, how did I prepare for my six weeks before my first? I, mm -hmm. I didn't really because there wasn't there wasn't really a lot out there 10 years ago. You know, there wasn't there just wasn't information. And so I, I said to myself, whenever I do my first half Ironman, I'm going to write a book about how to tell someone <laughs> they can do this no matter what they look like, no matter how much they weigh. Um, and, and so I did. And it was, I told my husband, I said, I want to write this book and I want to quit my law job. And he goes, no, President Obama wrote his book while he was in office. <laughs> you can write your book while you're at the law firm. And I thought, oh, goodness. And so, I, you know, it was what I needed to hear. And so I I wrote at night and I started it in January, 2011 and I pitched it to a couple of publishers, no one bit and I published it myself. So I put it out there in 2011, I published it, um, self-published it. And then two and a half years ago, Hachette book group approached me buying it and putting out a second edition. And I said, yes, let's do that. But I have a new book I want to write too. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I sold them the, the triathlon book and we did a wonderful second edition. It's a beautiful book. It came out this past March. Okay. Oh my gosh, it's been a year. It's been a year. Wow. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, it came out last March. Then I guess we have to say not this past. It came out last March, 2019, the second edition of triathlon for the every woman. 
And it, it, I'm so proud of that book. Like, I'm so proud of it on so many levels because one, I, I it represented something I set out to do um, and I just did it. You know, I just put it out there and it helped people and people loved it. And then someone in the publishing industry loved it enough to say, we want to we want to have this under our umbrella of books to help people do triathlons. You know? and, and then we were really able to dial it into a good book um, just it's been touched and edited and looked over so many times over the last nine years that I'm just I'm really proud of it and I get a lot of great feedback from that book and and so I'm just and, and I always talk to people about that tell me like I want to write a book I want to write a book I'm like oh my god just please go do it just just go do it get it out of you um, you never know what's going to come from it because if I had just not mm -hmm. done that if I had just not written triathlon for the every woman I wouldn't have had the opportunity to write the year of no nonsense. I wouldn't have had nothing. So many things would not have happened. And it was just a matter of sitting down, showing up and, and writing. And, you know, I make it sound easier than it was, but anything worth having is, is, is challenging. Yeah. Um, but, but just do it. If, if you're out there listening and you're like, I want to write a book, I got it in me, go do it. Start writing, get the book, <laughs> the war of art by Stephen Pressfield and go read that book and then get writing. That's what I would recommend. <laughs> Interesting, okay. Uh, shifting gears here a little, uh, what's your opinion on the kind of self-help industry and do you consider your content to be self-help? Uh, my opinion of the self-help industry, I love self-help is my opinion of the self-help industry. I think that like any industry, there's garbage in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a moneymaker, but let's be real. Everything is a moneymaker. <laughs> every industry, every, every planet, every corner of the basement, you can shine a light on it and there's a way to make money. So the self-help industry, I think there's certainly an argument to be made that it's preying on people that need it the most. Okay. Um, but I also think it's a, it's an incredible endless resource for people that are you know of growth mindset the Farrell Dweck's book mindset talks about people who are you're either a growth mindset or you're a fixed mindset and fixed mindset people think a certain way and they think that people are born with a certain amount of genius and they just didn't get it and you know that's the end of it but people with growth mindset are always looking for a way to just to grow to expand themselves to push the limits and so I love that the self-help industry has resources like that. I mean, you can find a book on anything and there's some really great ones and really terrible ones. Um, so I think my book, The Year of No Nonsense, it's certainly in Barnes and Noble under self-help or personal growth, I believe is the category. And mm -hmm. I don't really know where else we would put it. Um, <laughs> I, it, it, could, it doesn't really fit into biography. It doesn't fit into memoir. Um, it's definitely, I think your the book is um, part memoir. I would say it's like, 20% memoir and definitely has my stories, but any, I, I feel like any good self-help book is going to share stories of the author's self. And I find self-help books that are based strictly on research with no anecdotal evidence to be very boring and also hard to understand. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm definitely in the vein of self-help and the way I look at it is a decade ago, I was in a really dark place. And with a serious drinking problem, a career um, crisis, and I had no self. I had no North Star. I had no compass. I had no inner voice. And so when I look at where I've come now, I still have so much to work out. I still have so, so much more to grow and to, to become a better person. And so I am still growing, but I think where me as an author and a, and a caster where I fall into all this now is letting people see that there are many shades of self-help and there are many shades of improvement and there's many ways to, to make your life better and it's never going to be perfect and to quit, quit shooting for that. But to realize that if you're in a place that you're really suffering, there is a way out and there is a way to be better. And so that's what I try and do with my platform and, and my books. I'm kind of a terrible brander i don't really have <laughs> have a theme or a brand um because i feel like life is so you know there's so many different areas of life and to say oh just get your diet straight or just work out more i feel like that's that's neglecting so many other areas and 
Yeah. So self-help and self-growth, they're kind of the same for me. And I think maybe some people don't like the term self-quote help, yeah. but I look at it as it's self-growth. And if you have tools that can help you, then I'm all for it. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's more kind of around the term self-help kind of brings out a sort of a visceral reaction to a lot of people. Maybe personal growth might be a better a better term for it. Well, and I think people that have a visceral reaction to the term self-help might have an ego problem. <laughs> <laughs> and they should true. read Ego <laughs> is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. <laughs> because, I mean, and uh, look, I had an ego problem. We, we all have an ego problem, let's be real. But, um, you know, to think that you don't need self-help, any of you listening think you want to poo-poo growth. Like, come <laughs> on, got an ego problem. Like, it's fine. So, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and how important do you think it is for someone to clearly, clearly define their why as they set big goals for themselves? Oh, I think you have to know why you're doing it. Um, just to do it. I mean, I don't know. It'll carry you. If you're trying to prove something to someone else or prove something, to, I'll show this person I can beat him. I mean, that'll carry you through a race, maybe, maybe it'll carry you through an entire training season, but it's not going to carry you through a lifetime. It's not going to carry you. Uh, you know, when I stopped doing triathlon two years ago, it's because I, I don't have a why. When I was doing triathlon, I had a very strong why it was, mm -hmm. it was overcompensating for the fact I was drinking two bottles of wine a night. And it was trying to prove that I could get faster and better. And it was trying to support um, my athletes and I had a why. And then one day I woke up and I was like, I don't have any of those reasons anymore. The only reason I would have to still be doing triathlon right now would be to support my business. But it doesn't mean that I can't, I mean, it's, I always look at, and this is kind of a stretch, but Bella Caroli, the gymnast, gymnastics coach, he didn't, he wasn't out there doing somersaults, you know, he was just coaching. <laughs> he was mentoring. <laughs> like, I don't have to be out there racing to be a good mentor and to help people in the sport and and so when you lose your why like why why do it <laughs> why do it and so i think you do have to have a why i mean unless in your why can be it's fun that can mm -hmm. that's a good enough why it doesn't have to be this big existential reason oh i'm doing triathlon to save the world um but you have to have a, a reason that brings you some sort of satisfaction or you're just out there making yourself miserable. And what's the point of that? Life will make <laughs> you enough miserable on its own without <laughs> self-imposing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I love the name and the theme of your podcast. Uh, I guess, would you mind maybe providing a, a brief overview of your podcast and why you decided to start it? Sure. So the podcast is called The Same 24 Hours. And it's out of the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we choose to do in those 24 hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. So when people say, oh, I just wish I had 36 hours in the day, I'm like, oh, well, we all have the same 24 hours. <laughs> um, so it's just kind of a funny thing. But, you know, there, there's obviously some caveats to that. I mean, privilege and status and education and all that makes everyone's 24 hours slightly different. But I like to look at it from a positive, positive stance that like, how can we maximize our 24 hours versus saying, Oh, I wish I had more hours, you know, so that's kind of the theme of the podcast. It's loosely translated. I really just interview interesting people that I think have a great story to tell and um, have had some amazing guests. Like we talked to Tony Hawk two weeks ago and I talked to Dr. Oh, wow. William Sears, who's the author of all those baby books and he has a new book out. And, um, you know, I've talked to Dr. Shafali and Gary John Bishop and of course um, a bunch of CrossFitters and Miranda Carfrey. And I mean, I've just had just a wide variety of, of interesting people on and, and everyone has some hack or something to share about what makes their 24 hours great. And the, the biggest answer, the most common answer I've gotten is I meditate. That is like the number one thing that people do to make the most of their 24 hours. And it kind of goes to the idea that what you do in the morning sort of makes your day. And I've really taken that to heart after, after almost three years, I am finally a daily meditator. I do it in the morning. And I really think it's because my podcast guests beat me down. <laughs> because <laughs> I was like, fine, I will do what you're doing. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my podcast and 
it's available on all the outlets, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what guests have made the most impact on you and how you choose to spend your 24 hours? Oh, yeah. So Dr. Shafali Sabari, she's um, author of The Conscious Parent. She was on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. She's absolutely, <clears throat> excuse me, fantastic. And the way that she talks about parenting was so, so, so perfect timing for me and changed so much of the way I think about my children. And one of the main things that that she kind of taught taught me and continues to teach is that we don't own our children, that we're not in charge of them. We are not the boss of them. They are dependent spirits and we are here to guide them. We're here to, you know, help them, but, but we don't own them. And quite the opposite. They're here to teach us. And when I thought about, oh my gosh, these two people in my life are here to teach me. And when you look at your parenting in that way, Oh, Lordy, it really changes because you can see these moments when you feel yourself getting angry because they won't, you know, take out the trash or pick up to themselves. What mm -hmm. it does is it tells you, you know, what you're feeling about yourself and what your fears are. And, and, oh man, and it just changed everything for me. And honestly, even if you don't have kids, it's really fascinating stuff because, you learn how to self-parent. So if you, if you grew up and you didn't have the greatest parents or you, you had a terrible childhood, her, her teachings and, and her books really tell you how to parent yourself because maybe you, you didn't ever learn how to love your, yourself, to, to speak kindly to yourself or to put yourself on a schedule. And it, she was just really powerful. So I always, I always think about her. But Tony Hawk was pretty awesome too. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. It's turning out to... Keep that in mind when uh, that time comes when I'm a parent. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about your focus, um, maybe, maybe for back up, for lack of a better term, around nonsense. So you wrote a book titled The Year of No Nonsense, How to Get Over Yourself and on, and on With Your Life. You have a section on your website called Notes on Nonsense and have a column on Psychology Today called The Doctor of Nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess why the term nonsense? Yeah. Um, so in 2017, I, I had a bunch of things just go wrong professionally and friendships and just like my whole life sort of crumbled. Um, I kept my family, I kept my health, but everything else just sort of fell apart. And I just looked around one day and I was like, oh my gosh, everything in my life is just complete nonsense. This is just the stupidest crap I'm, I'm continuing to do and I'm entertaining, like why doing this? And I thought, oh my gosh, what if I have a year of no nonsense? I'm just going to get rid of all this nonsense and everything will be great. And, and so it became this kind of funny experiment. But what I learned in the process is that we all have our own personal brands of nonsense and we have the, the habits, the things we're doing that, you know, tick us off that are standing in the way of our, our health and our happiness and our, our success. And if we can identify those things in our lives and, and nonsense is subjective, mine is not yours, yours is not mine. Um, if we can identify those things that are nonsense to us, we can make a decision. And so one of the challenges that I leave people with like on podcast is you can take a, take two weeks and every choice you have to make that comes to you, ask yourself, is this nonsense? Yes or no. And it's a really fun way to look at your life, <laughs> to categorize every person, place or thing in your life as nonsense to you. And all that does is allows you to see kind of what you're dealing with. And you don't necessarily have to change anything. You don't, but you can say, you know what, this is, this is kind of nonsense. It's nonsense that I'm eating an entire jar of Nutella every night I, when I want to lose weight. <laughs> like That's nonsense. <laughs> and you can choose to continue eating your jar of Nutella every night. But now you know that that's nonsense to you. And what are you going to do about it? You know, and so it's kind of a fun experience to do because you'll see the people in your life that um, bring certain reactions. You'll see your way of reacting to them. And it can all lead to a greater understanding of, of yourself. And so the year of no nonsense is about this process and, and about digging a little bit deeper and getting rid of some of the external and internal nonsense that's standing in the way of what we really want. Interesting.
would you be comfortable maybe sharing kind of one of the i guess big i don't know pieces of nonsense i guess that was uh maybe holding you back from maybe progressing in one part of your life sure i mean the main thing for me and i, I talk about like if you come to a scene of an accident you're going to deal with the major bleeder you know the the most injured person on the scene right and the same thing with your nonsense if you deal with the major bleeder first, whatever thing is really standing in your way, first and foremost, that's going to give you your biggest you know, ROI. You're going to get your biggest uh, return on investment by dealing with that one. For me, that was alcohol. I drank way too much for way too long. And mm -hmm. when I got sober, I was able to suddenly find more time. I was able to have more money, have more peace. I lost some weight. I, I was healthier. My skin was better. Like I had a huge run on my investment for giving up that nonsense. Um, but a lot of people aren't ready to give up their big nonsense. And a lot of people don't know what it is because it's presenting as something else. You know, a lot of times the things right. we're doing are just symptoms of the major problem. And that's what I call the truth onion. You have to peel the stinky layers until you get to the core and of the truth. Like, oh, here's what, here's the core. Here's what I really need to be dealing with. Oh my goodness. Um, but finding the, the biggest perceived bleeder in your life and getting rid of that nonsense is going to change your life. It creates a, a snowball effect. I call it the, the nonsense snowball. Then you just start picking up little nonsense and putting it in the snowball. And you're like, nope, 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 not doing that. And, and it really is a life change that you created because you, you picked out what the problem was and you, you, you plucked it out and you said, you know, no more. I'm not, I'm not going to entertain this, do it, take part in it. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your take on definitive statements and maybe how they can be self-sabotaging? Um, like, a, like, give me an example. Like I am, uh, fat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> would be a definitive That's statement. That's always used. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh man, we are exactly what we say we are. And then we're also what we say we're not, you know, I mean, the things we say to ourselves are so important. They're so important. And I think labels, like labels are good if they serve you. You know, if, you, if you're sitting there saying, I'm a New York Times bestselling author with a hot fit body, which I happen to say every morning, and I'm neither of those things at the moment. Um, but if you're going to say things that are definitive, they need to be things that you want to grow into or things that you're sure and, and that you're proud to be. Like the importance of naming, the importance of numbers. These, these, these are themes in my book. And you've got to get behind your names and numbers in a good way but don't let yourself define you in these statements that aren't going to benefit you like there you get nothing out of saying oh i'm always going to be broke like what in the world is that going to do to serve you <laughs> like right. that is never going to help you um unless you want to be broke i mean if, if that's what you want then keep saying it you know or i'm not a runner and you want to be a runner well don't say you're not a runner you need to be saying every day every chance you get i am a runner and I'm good at it, even if you're not, it doesn't matter. You have to think, you, you want to attract that energy. And, and people that think that's garbage, that is, it's not garbage. Like you become your thoughts. That is one thing that I know for sure. Um, and, and a quick example, um, I started writing in a gratitude journal um, 2017, probably the end of 2017. I started writing every day. I am a successful author of a traditionally published book. And traditionally published means you have a publisher not, you know, you didn't publish it. And at the time I had self-published my triathlon book, but I really wanted a publisher. I wanted to go the traditional route. I wanted my books in bookstores. And within six months I had a, I had a deal with Hachette, not only for triathlon, but for the year of no nonsense. So I, and I put that out there every day. And I was like, this is who I am. This is who I'm going, this is what's going to come to me. And I, I believe in that. I believe in the power to, to attract what you want. And you will attract exactly what you want with, with your statements, <laughs> I, I think. Yeah, I would, I would uh, completely agree with that, too. I'm, I'm also a big believer in kind of the, the power of the, the spoken word and also the, the written word, too. So I mm -hmm. um, would yeah. completely agree. Yeah. So I, I think that a person's ultimate fear in modern society is what other people think of them. Would you agree with that? Ultimate fear is what other people think of them. I think our ultimate fear is that, I mean, it's only really tied to it, but I think our ultimate fear is that they will reject us and that we won't be loved and that mm -hmm. 
we won't be worthy of love. So I definitely think it's, it's tied in there. Um, and that's where the fear of failure coming comes in. And so, well, I'm going to fail. Why even try? So I, I can agree with that to a degree and, and, and learning to find joy and power in ourselves as we are. That's, that's the, that's the goal, I think. And that, man, that's hard. That's, that's tough work. <laughs> tough work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The reason I asked that is just kind of getting to the root of why, um, kind of a lot of people don't really, uh, maybe pursue their, that goal that kind of scares them, but in the end, kind of, they know maybe deep down will really help them and kind of really transform their lives. Like it was for you and triathlon yeah. kind of doing that scary thing is ultimately going to be the thing that'll help you grow, you know? Yeah. And I think sometimes we don't identify what it is that will help us grow. Um, Sometimes we don't, we're not clear in our, in our vision. And, and just like you said about definitive statements, if even if you don't feel strong enough to go after it, if you just start to focus on it, it'll come. If you start to, to focus on this is my goal, um, you will eventually get around to it, I, I believe. It's just mm-hmm. like you can't ignore it. It starts to, to peck at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you do, you do have to somehow not worry about what other people think, but that, you know, to say that we, we just get to that point, that's so off. Like we're, I think everyone cares about what people think to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, I guess bringing this back to the name of the podcast, uh, the driving force podcast, what would you say is your driving force these days? Um, and how has that maybe changed as you've kind of transformed your life? Yeah, so my driving force right now is learning to have um, personal integrity. And this is something that I probably would have said, oh, yeah, I have plenty of personal integrity. Yeah, I'm good at that. Um, But I've sort of seen it differently recently, Um, just in the fact that I have a real hard time keeping promises and keeping my word to myself. And Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the big things, like the big things like, oh, you're going to go write your book. Yeah, I'll go do that. But it's the small things. It's like, I'm dairy free, but I'm going to have some cream in my coffee today. Why? You know, it's going to mess you up. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. why, why don't I just keep that promise to myself? Or why don't I stick to my meal plan as I want to? Like, I, I want to do this meal plan. I want the results. Like, I'm meditating every day. Why don't I make my bed? And it's not just like I want to beat myself up for the things I'm doing or not doing. But it's a low level of personal integrity that I'm not keeping. And I, what I've seen happen over the years, while I've really firmed up a lot of powerful areas of my life, some things have slipped because I haven't kept basic promises to myself. Um, I'm really working on just being honest, like honest with myself, um, say what I mean, mean what I say, honest with other people and, and not trying to sugarcoat things. I mean, to be kind, but but don't lie, you know, not lie to people just because, um, to, to just try and be a little more honest. And, and this is all coming with, I interviewed Lauren Zander on the podcast. She's the, the founder of Handel group. And I've started working with her as my coach and mm-hmm. her methods are crazy. Um, she's really intense, like, and she's taken me through the ringer for sure, but she's made me realize that a lot of stuff that I thought I was doing and working really hard at, Oh, I'm working really hard at this. I'm not doing anything. (laughs) I'm just telling myself I am. (laughs) And, and when you really break that down, it's like, Whoa, I could be doing more. And, and, you know, I know right now in this culture, a lot of people are saying like, well, we need to quit saying like, let's do more, stop doing more. More is enough. Maybe, but only if you're keeping your word and you're, you're doing the best you can for you. You know, I, I think that there's a fine line between pushing ourselves too hard and also just saying, I'm going to give up because it's hard. And and that's where mm-hmm. I think personal integrity sort, sort of gets worn down. At least it has for me. So, yeah, that's that's my driving force right now. I'm working on a little more honesty and a lot more in personal personal integrity. Yeah. Sounds awesome. fun, doesn't it, Chase? <laughs> You're like, <laughs> yeah, it's a barrel of laughs. <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's great. Um, a faster 5k would have been more fun, but yeah, we'll no, work I, on personal integrity right now. <laughs> no, I think that's much more, much more, much more interesting. Um, and, uh, I guess lastly, before we wrap this up, what advice would you like to leave the people listening? 
um, I guess other than buying one of your books or listening to your podcast, um, who want to, you know, eat healthier, become fitter, et cetera, but can't really seem to stick with it over time. Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of goes back to, to my current goal too, is one, you, you do need to see the truth about where you are. And for, for many, many years, I thought, you know, I couldn't lose weight. I couldn't do this. It just wasn't in the cards for me. And I, I don't believe that that's true, you know, not for me anyway. And so coming to your, looking at yourself, looking at your life from a place of honesty, just be honest, even if the truth is ugly, um, to be honest with yourself about who you are, who you've become, what you want to do, where you want to go. I think that's such a great starting point because we really don't want to see the hard things to see, but the sooner you see them, the sooner you can deal with them and really work toward the life you want. And I, I don't believe any of us are stuck. We're only stuck because we're in a habit loop. You know, you got to get out of that habit loop, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, shake it up and, and just do something different. And, and that's the thing. It doesn't have to be big. You can change your life by just getting up in the morning and doing something differently. And that's how it started for me. I just started going to the gym. <laughs> it doesn't have to even be as big as the gym. You could just journal every morning or read something inspiring, listen to a podcast. You can do anything to just shake things up and you never know where that's going to lead you. So, yeah. Awesome. That's a, that's a great way to, to end it. Uh, Meredith, thanks again for coming on. Um, this was great. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, where can people go if they want to you know, follow you on social media, listen to your podcast, and maybe contact you about speaking and coaching opportunities? Yeah. Yeah. Just um, my website is swimbikemom.com, and I'm everywhere on social media at swimbikemom. And the podcast is the same 24 hours, and you can find it on any of your favorite podcast apps just by searching the same 24 hours. So, yeah, and you can email me. I check all my own emails. So if you send me an email, it'll be me <laughs> reading it. <laughs> awesome. And, uh, You can also visit my website, chaserosa.com, and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Uh, Thanks, everyone who's listening, and see you next time.